Well, goodness, this has already been a notable morning <laughs> as we received this, the wonderful um, acapella gospel music and uh, witnessed a human ice cream cone. Uh, we are grateful to Fritz that he is willing to be a fool for Christ for us. So thank you, Fritz. Um, if you haven't um, been with us or if you weren't here last week, we've started a little tiny three-week mini-series um, on the Bible to end the summer with. You know, occasionally what we try to do um, is dive into one of our values as a congregation so that we can figure out how we can live more faithfully to it. And one of our values as a church is biblical faithfulness, but that's an easy thing to say and a harder thing to do. What does it mean uh, to engage with these, this ancient yet eternally relevant Word of God? How do we apply this ancient Word to the modern world that we live in today? That's what we're asking so that we can be a people who are grounded in the Scriptures and who are living it out before the world. So last week, we looked at some really important truths about Scripture, looking at 2 Timothy 3. Uh, we looked at how, first of all, Scripture originates within God himself, breathed out of his very spirit. Uh, we, we looked at how Scripture has a unified message that despite all of its complexity, it is one unified story about what God has done to rescue the world through his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we also looked at one of the great purposes of Scripture is that God has given it to us not for primarily information, but for personal transformation, that the Scripture is meant to be our supreme authority for our beliefs and our behavior, and that we, as we come under its authority day by day. So today, we're getting into an issue that is a, a little more complicated, and that is how we interpret the Bible, how we learn to listen carefully to the ancient text and apply it to the modern world today. Now, let me say this. I have struggled mightily with this sermon. I've taught interpreting the Bible before in six-hour-long classes. And so trying to boil this down to a 25-minute sermon has been really challenging to me. And I've ended up with a sermon that is probably a bit more heavy, dense, academic than a typical sermon is. So if you are visiting today, I, I, I'm sorry. I hope you come back. <laughs> Um, next week, and know that this is not a typical message, and for all of you regulars, you'll just have to indulge me today. But at the heart of this is that God wants to make us better listeners. He wants us to be people who are really hearing what he's saying, so that we can do what he's calling us to do today, okay? So we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. So if you turn there in your Bibles, or, or open the bulletin to page 11, you'll see it printed there. Let me pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, we thank you so much that already we've heard the gospel proclaimed this morning. Uh, we were gathered by your word. You called us here, and then we were reminded of our sin and our brokenness and our need for you. You pronounce your forgiveness over us that we are saved through the work of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Thank you that we can come to you now because of Jesus, because he is our high priest and he gives us access to you. Help me now in my weakness and all of us uh, in our weakness that we would not just learn a bit today, but that it would change us, change the way that we understand and interpret the Bible so that we can be better listeners and doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 1, hear God's word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. I never knew my great-grandfather, Joseph William Widmer, but there's many stories about him in our family, and many of the stories are about his hard of hearing. He, he was quite a deaf man, and he had these big, bulky hearing aids. This was, of course, uh, before our current technological sophistication, and so he had these large units in his ears that were unable to adjust in any way. And so the story goes is that my dad and all his cousins, there were about 10 of them, mostly boys, they would come rushing into their grandparents' house and come running around the room, just playing with their toy guns, yelling and shooting and tumbling and fighting, creating this loud ruckus, and my great-grandfather would just slowly reach up and one by one just click off his hearing aids. And then he would sit there in total serenity, surrounded by this loud rush of noise, oblivious to anything but the paper that he was reading. Now, eventually, my great-grandmother would try to get his attention and would call out, Joseph, Joseph, take out the trash. Joseph, I need your help with the kitchen. And of course, Joseph would just sit there completely unresponsive, hearing absolutely nothing but the silence of his own thoughts. James, in this passage, uh, says that when it comes to the Word of God, we humans have a hearing problem and a doing problem. We have a serious hearing problem and a serious doing problem. Now, we've probably all recognized the doing problem. It's something that we probably can see in ourselves. Let me just be honest. The great majority of the time when it comes to the Scripture, we don't have a struggle with interpretation. We know exactly what the Scripture is saying, but we just don't do it. So, for example, I'll throw out an easy one. Philippians 2.4, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, that is not a very difficult passage to interpret or to decipher what it means. Yet, raise your hand if you perfectly obey the command of God this week to do everything you did without any complaining or any arguing. Well, I'm glad all of us are humble enough to not raise our hands. And my guess is, is that you did not obey the Word of God this week in that text, at least, because not because you were having a hard time understanding what that text means, but because you actually know what it means and you just didn't obey. Right? James says we have a serious doing problem when it comes to the Word of God. But, and this is what I mainly want to talk about today, is that we also have a hearing problem. That just like my great-grandpa, who could not do what his wife was asking because he, could, because he couldn't hear her, we need to be able to hear what Scripture is saying to us if we're going to do what it says. And here's the truth, friends. Sometimes, even when we're reading the Bible and wanting to obey it, we still can not hear the Bible clearly and what it is saying to us. And there are many reasons for that. But today I want to focus on one big issue that prevents us from hearing God clearly speaking to us through the scriptures, and that is the problem of culture. The problem, as this series title suggests, that we live when it comes to scripture between two worlds. I have a diagram for you here. Shocking, I know, right? I love diagrams. Every time you pick up the Bible, you are inhabiting two worlds. On the one hand, you live, I think all of you do, in the modern world with all of our modern ways of living and eating and dressing and speaking and thinking with all of our complex problems of our modern globalized society. So we live on the right in the modern world. Yet when we open the Bible, what happens? We enter into the ancient biblical world. We go back two millennia 
back behind the digital age, the information age, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, we go back into a time that has long ceased to exist and feels, sometimes when we read the Bible, really odd, obsolete, dusty, and musty, and out of touch with our modern reality. Now, in the middle between those two worlds is what? 2,000 years of changing culture, changing history. And one of the great questions is, how can we cross the divide? How could something, maybe you've asked this question yourself, how could something written so long ago in such a different time, in a different place, speak with any relevancy to our world today? A friend of mine who's a pastor told me about an interaction he had with a college student who was raised as a Christian and then went to college and lost his faith. And my friend was talking to him and he said, did you abandon your faith because you no longer believe that Christianity is true? And this young man said, no, 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 it doesn't matter to me whether it's true or not. And my friend was surprised. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, what matters to me is, is that Christianity is not relevant. And, and, and then he went on to say this. He says, Christianity was founded in a primitive Palestinian culture. You read the Bible, and it is full of violence and oppression and full of regressive cultural practices. And then he looked at my friend straight in the face, and he says, what does your primitive Palestinian religion have anything to say to the complex modern world that we live in today? Now, that, that's, a, that's a, a shocking thing to hear, but it's a question that many people struggle with, many young people struggle with. Many people may even struggle with this today. It's how does this ancient word apply to this modern world? And one of the great tasks of Christians living in the world that we live in today is to demonstrate the relevance of the ancient gospel for every time and every place and every culture under heaven. And one of the key ways we do that is through the work of biblical interpretation. Because what biblical interpretation does is it builds a bridge. It looks at the ancient original meaning of the text to listen carefully to the, what the text said back then and then works to cross the bridge into our modern world today to apply the text for our own situation today. So this is a, a working definition of a biblical interpretation that I'll use today. It means to listen carefully to the original meaning of the text so that we can clearly hear how the Bible is speaking to our own context today. Now, I can only scratch the surface today, like I said, but what I'd like to address is two ways that we need to, two things we need to understand about both the modern world and the ancient world so that we can become better and wiser interpreters, faithful and obedient to the word of God, okay? So the first issue that I wanna look at with you is if we're going to become wise interpreters of the text, we need to look at our context and look at the ways that we are often limited by our own culture, that our own culture can blind us or make us deaf to things that God wants us to hear in the text. All Bible readers are prisoners of their own cultures, the way we think and dress and eat and act. Everything is determined by our upbringing, our family background, and our experience. Now, to ourselves, we seem normal. I seem normal to myself, as peculiar as you think I may be. Our ways of doing things always seem normative to us. Right? I remember moving to England after college and thinking how strange it was the way that the British did things. And I'll never forget the first woman who came up to me, this British woman, and said, oh, I love your accent. 
And of course, I was thinking to myself, you're the one with the accent. I'm just normal, right? Because to ourselves, we are normal. You know, often white folks will say, oh, let's go out for ethnic food, by which we mean let's eat Chinese or Vietnamese or something. But, you know, a Vietnamese family doesn't say that. They just say, let's eat food. (laughs) Because to them, it's not ethnic, it's normal. So for all of us, because we are all made by God, put in a place to inhabit on the earth, are by his creation, culturally formed creatures. But here's the thing. That same cultural formation can make it difficult to study and understand and hear what Scripture is saying without our own biases influencing the way that we read the Bible. So our gender or our income level or our family or history or our race or nationality or temperament or something that's happened to us or something that someone has done to you, all of those things we bring to the text when we pick it up and read it. And sometimes those things can lead us astray so that what we are hearing is not God's word, but echoes of our own culture. The problem of our cultural imprisonment can account for much of the church's unfaithfulness throughout the centuries. And I'm guessing that if you're someone here today that is not a Christian, you're struggling with your faith, you probably struggle with that. How has the, how has the church throughout the centuries been so unfaithful um, and been so, frankly, uh, really compromising in many ways? Let's take, for example, the Crusades. We, we all sort of shake our heads at how, how could that have happened? How could, how could Christians, pastors, bishops, leaders in the church, how could they have approved and glamorized violence even believing in the authority of the Word of God. And what happened in the Crusades had such a terrible negative impact that if you talk to Christian missionaries in the Middle East today, you'll know that continues to be a huge impediment to evangelism among Muslims today. And what was that? That was a problem of interpretation. They misread their scripture. Or what about the Inquisition? How could that have happened? How could Christians, in the name of Jesus, sanction torture? conversions based on violence. How could that have happened? Or something more closer to home, uh, the American church's justification of slavery arguing on the basis of scripture. There were many well-meaning pastors, even in our city, who preached sermons in pulpits in Richmond, Virginia, defending slavery, upholding white supremacy, justifying the oppression of black men and women and boys and girls, And they all did it thinking they were upholding the authority of Scripture and hearing it properly. Goodness. And we just shake our heads at that and we say, how could that be? How how could they not see that they were mishearing the text? But before you shake your heads and say, oh gosh, how terrible, we need to ask that about ourselves. How how, how might we be deaf? How might our culture be blinding us to see what God is wanting to say to us through his word. A hundred years from now, what will Christians looking back on us say? Say, how could they not have known? How could those Christians in Richmond, Virginia in 2018 believe those? How could they not have seen that they were compromising to the culture at that time? You know, I don't know what they'll say. I'm, I'm quite certain they'll, they'll note the, the North American Christians' excessive wealth and our rampant materialism and our lack of concern for this widening gap in the global poor. Uh, I, I'm quite certain they'll, they'll note our, the American church's continued acceptance of racial segregation and division in the church. I mean, I don't know what they'll say, but here's the thing. We must be vigilant. We must be vigilant to allow God's word to confront our cultural assumptions, our patterns of thought. 
Why? We want to be shaped by the word, friends, not by the world. We want to do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what Paul told us to be. So we must work hard to see where are we really hearing God's word, or are there times where we are actually listening to our own cultural assumptions? We must surrender freshly to the word of God, holding it up critically to, our, to ourselves. So that's the first thing that we want to do to be wise interpreters of God's word is to recognize how our culture may be blinding us or making us deaf. The second thing that we can do as wise cultural uh, biblical interpreters is to understand the cultural conditioning of the Bible. Now, last week we examined this great truth that God has spoken, that it is a God-breathed book. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, we noted that the Bible is unlike any other book because it is given and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's revelation And therefore, here's the good news, it has eternal relevance, speaks to all humankind in every age, at every point of history, in every culture. Yet at the same time, we also as Christians believe that God spoke his word through human authors. We're not like Muslims who believe that the Quran was just dropped straight out of heaven without any cultural conditioning at all, which is why the only appropriate interpretation and reading of the Quran can happen in Arabic. Christians believe that just like in the incarnation, when God entered the human flesh and took on a particular human form in a particular time of history, so God used human authors speaking to men and women in particular cultural times and contexts. And so even though the Bible is like no other book because it is God's word, it is also like every other book in that it is conditioned by the culture that it was written in at the time. Now, what does that mean? It means that to be a wise and faithful reader of God's word, we must listen very carefully to the original meaning of God's word when it was first given before we ask what it means for me today. So going back to our diagram, I think this is a tendency that we have as especially American Christians, to be honest, and part of it is because of our culture that we're trained to be very self-focused and individualistic, that often when we come to the Bible, the first question we ask is, what does it mean for me, right? What does this Bible verse mean for me. But interpretation says that before we say, what does it mean for me, we must ask the prior question, what did it mean for them? I want to go back and hear how the original hearers first heard the word of God so that we can understand what it's truly saying. So let me just give you an example from our Bible text this morning from the New Testament. You know, James said this funny thing about, do not be like those who look into a mirror and forget what they look like. Now, we might say as modern readers, how, how silly, you know, how could someone look into a mirror and forget what they look like? But as modern people, we have mirrors everywhere. We have mirrors, you know, five mirrors in our houses, mirrors in our bedrooms, mirrors in the car, mirrors on our phone, that, you, know, you know, you check your teeth and stuff like that on your phone. You know, we have mirrors everywhere. How could you forget what you look like? But back then in the ancient world, hardly anyone had mirrors. Only the truly wealthy people had a mirror. You probably only saw a mirror once or twice in your life, and the mirrors that they had were not made of glass but of polished metal, and so the image was quite blurry. And so what James is actually saying is that it's quite easy to forget what you look like, and what he's making a point is that the process of moral reflection is very difficult. It's very difficult to see truly what the Bible wants to do in you. It's very easy to forget. And so when we attend to the original meaning, we can then know what God might be saying to us through it today. It's vital we pay close attention to that. Why is this so important? Because we want to be good listeners. If we do not pay attention to the original meaning of the text, listen, this is very important. The Bible can be turned into whatever you want it to mean. If you don't ask first, what did the Bible mean, before you ask, what does it mean for me, Bible reading becomes completely subjective. You can twist any passage 
to mean whatever you want it to mean. A classic example of this that we see all the time is the, is the spreading movement of the prosperity gospel that often bases their preaching of health and wealth on specific biblical texts. But as we know, they are not attending the original meaning of the text, the original context of the text, and they are twisting the text to perhaps suit their own desires. The Bible cannot mean whatever you want it to mean. It means today what it meant then. And it takes hard work to pay close attention to the text, doing careful study, looking at the context, looking at the social and environmental circumstances of the original time it was written, paying attention to the literary genre of the text. So, for example, when you come to the Psalms and you read in Psalm 91.4, the Lord covers you with his feathers and under his wings you find refuge. We're careful interpreters. We don't then deduce that God is a large bird, right? I'm being serious. We don't say, oh, God must be a, a bird. No, we know because of the genre that it's poetry, it's being using a metaphor. And so we interpret that passage metaphorically, whereas we read the Gospels, we know it's telling a narrative reporting story, and so we take it literally. So we attend to all of these original intent of the author so that we can hear the original meaning of the text and then can faithfully apply that meaning to our own context today. Are you still with me, friends? Are you still with me, brothers and sisters? Okay, I know this is tough, but this is hard, good work that we got to do if we want to listen to God's word, okay? So let's put this into practice and see how, see how we're going to do. Okay, let's say you're reading the Bible, you're reading the Bible in your small group or you're on your own or something, and you come to what seems like a really strange and difficult passage. Let's, let's just say you're reading 1 Corinthians, and you come to passage 1 Corinthians 11, and, and Paul says, women, make sure you cover your heads in church, okay? What in the world does that mean? Okay, you have a couple of options when you come to a text like that, okay? And this is, this is, this is choices of interpretation. The first thing you could do is you could just do total rejection. You could say, this is dumb. This is regressive. This doesn't make any sense in our time today. Let's throw it out. It obviously is completely irrelevant to our time and culture today, okay? The second thing you could do is called wooden literalism. You could just take not only the, the, the timeless truth that's within the text, but you could also take the cultural form in which it's placed and try to apply them literally both. So there are churches and denominations that do this. You'll see women wearing head coverings. I don't see any head coverings here today, so I assume that none of you are, are wooden literalists, at least with 1 Corinthians 11, because why? You've made an interpretive choice. So what's the third thing that you could do? The third thing is the wise work of biblical interpretation, which is cultural transposition, which what that means is you go back and you say, what did the text mean then? Look at when it was written, ask careful questions about the author, the audience, the circumstances, and then seeks to translate the, listen to this, essential revelation into a new contemporary form. So when you do that in 1 Corinthians 11, you say, oh my goodness, now I understand. What that means is at the time, head covering was a sign that a woman was bound to a man. It was a, and if a woman did not wear a head covering, it was a sign that she was, she was sexually available. It was something that Paul didn't want to see happen in a church. So what would be a contemporary form of that? It would mean that women and men, when they come into public gatherings, they should make sure to wear the signs of their covenant partnership, which in our modern time today would be their wedding rings. So women, men, make sure you wear your wedding rings to church, right? That's, so we make a cultural transposition into our time today. So let me, here's a, here's a definition. Just as we distinguish between a person and their clothing, so we must distinguish between the essence of God's revelation and its cultural form. The cultural application may change, the essential revelation does not. Let's, you know, clothing is a great illustration. Fritz Kling today uh, was wearing an ice cream suit, oddly, 
Um, but yesterday I was with Fritz and he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I've also seen Fritz wear a suit, like I am now. I've also seen Fritz go on a run and wear running clothes. The clothing changes in every case, but the person itself, the essential person of who Fritz is, endures. And so this is what we do. We say, what is the essential revelation that has application and authority across all cultures, and what is the particular cultural form in which it's expressed? So let's do some examples. We already did one with the head covering. Let's do some more. Okay, let's talk about uh, foot washing, okay? You come to John uh, chapter 13, and you see this funny story uh, about Jesus washing disciples' feet. Now, if you study the the context and the original circumstances of the time, you'll know that foot washing back then was as common as hand washing is today. That when you walked into someone's house, there was a servant there, and the first thing that happened was that they would take off your shoes because you always wore sandals and because the streets were full of dust and dirt, and even there was no sewage systems, and it was very gross. And the the most uh, menial servant would take off your sandals and wash your feet so you could come and be welcomed by the host. Now, in this shocking story, Jesus, there is no servant, so Jesus himself takes off uh, his robe and gets down on his knees and takes off the disciples' feet and washes them. And then he says to them, as I have done for you, now go and do this for each other. What does that mean for us today? Well, number one, you could, be a, you could reject it totally and say, because we no longer live in a culture where people wear open-toed sandals all the time and there's sewage running in the streets, this is no longer relevant to us today. Let's throw it out. Choice one. Choice two, you could be a wooden literalist and say Jesus literally means we must wash each other's feet all the time. So I'm going to walk up to, you know, my friend Marcellus after the service and say, please take off your socks and shoes. I need to wash your feet right now because Jesus said to. You know, is that what we do? There are some congregations that take it so seriously that they've actually incorporated it into their liturgy. Is that what Jesus means? He literally wants us to, to wash feet all the time? Or do we do the work of interpretation and cultural transposition where we say what was the eternal truth and the command that Jesus was trying to convey and what might be a contemporary expression of that eternal truth among us today? What do you think? Let's, let's tell you, turn to your neighbor and say, what do you think would be a contemporary expression, a c- contextualization of, of washing someone's feet? Come on, talk to each other. Yeah, I mean it. <laughs> okay. Time's up. Okay, anybody? Uh, sorry, that wasn't very much time, but I got, I got more to talk about here. Uh, anyone have any ideas? What would be a contemporary expression? So c- caring for the most poor and, and helpless among us, yeah? What would be another contemporary expression? Any kind of service? I, I'd say even more, th- I'd even push you more than that and say menial service, Right? Toilet scrubbing. Sorry? Regardless of, of someone's status, right? Regardless of how important you may be in the world. See, the, the truth that Jesus is conveying there is there is no task that is ever too menial for any Christian to do for someone else. And back then that meant foot, wash, uh, foot washing, but what does it mean for you today as a, as a husband, as a wife, as, as, a, as an employee, as an employer? What does it mean for you to, to no, not stop at any task, no matter how menial, for the sake of love? Second, though, here's another example, the holy kiss. Five times in the New Testament, Paul commands us to give each other a holy kiss. That's, that's more times than he commanded the Eucharist 
right? The holy kiss. And so what do we do with that? Do we do total rejection? Oh, that's silly, kind of inappropriate. You know, let's just kind of throw that one out. Is that what we do? Or are we a wooden literalist? <laughs> you young men may say, yes, yes, I am a wooden literalist when it comes to holy kisses. Um, no, what, what we do is we do the hard work of interpretation in cultural transposition. What we know is that Paul proclaimed that Jesus and his grace has created a new spiritual family. And because of that new spiritual family, when Christians meet, we're called to not just say hello, but do something with a physical expression of affection that marks our new family status. And that's different for different cultures. So back then, it was, it was a holy kiss. For Eskimos today, it would be a, a rub, rubbing of the nose. Uh, for Indians, it would be, you know, the clasping of the hands. For the Japanese, it would be, you know, bowing at the waist. For Americans, it might be a big bear hug. And for British, it would be standing at a great distance and shaking your hands. Um, it's actually hilarious. J.B. Phillips, who translated, a British guy who translated the New Testament, translates Romans 16 as, and give a jolly handshake all around. You know? <laughs> but what matters is, is that when we see, see each other, we greet each other with an appropriate sign of physical affection, which is why we've incorporated that into our worship, why we give each other either a kiss or not a kiss, sorry, a handshake or a hug or, or something um, equivalent, okay? So foot washing, holy kiss. Now, I've talked about three pretty easy examples. I'm going to talk about one more, more difficult example, because this is really where the rubber hits the road, especially when it comes to issues of like gender and sexuality that we're struggling with today. So let's talk about women um, in the New Testament, because I know a lot of you women have struggled with this, men, you've struggled with this. Um, and this is something that Christians who are equally committed to the authority of Scripture sometimes result with different interpretations and even fight and argue about. There's even Christians in our own church who disagree on this. And so we need to give each other charity when it comes to interpretation. But here's, here's what I want to say just briefly now. When churches and denominations like ours affirm women in ministry, as, as we do here, it's sometimes assumed that we do that because we're not taking the authority of Scripture seriously. Is it because we came to difficult passages in the New Testament, especially about women, and said, ew, ooh, that seems regressive or, or irrelevant, so, so let's just throw those verses out. Are we doing selective listening? Are, are we paying attention to the passages that are comfortable to us, but avoiding the ones that aren't? Is that what we're doing? And I would say, no. We, we hold our position because following in the line of many wonderful evangelical scholars and leaders like my mentor, John Stott, and F.F. Bruce and Gordon Fee and N.T. Wright and Billy Graham and many others, we are seeking to do the faithful work of interpretation and cultural transposition, not importing our modern assumptions onto the text, but paying attention to the original context that these passages were written. So when you read the Bible carefully when it comes to gender, there's two clear themes that emerge. On the one hand, there's equality. We see from the very first chapter of the Bible that men and women are created as equal partners made in the image of God. In the Old Testament, even, women served as leaders and heroes, as we'll see in the fall when we study Ruth, many times leading in ways that were very out of step with the, the ancient world. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon men and women to serve in full partnership with men. And we see them in the New Testament, church serving as disciples, deaconesses, prophets, apostles, ministry leaders, benefactors, teachers, disciples, and house church leaders. One of the great gospel proclamations is Galatians 3.26, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul celebrates that Jesus has challenged the social divisions of the ancient world and given equal standing to men and women, slave and free. So when you read, as a modern reader, what the New Testament says about women, it may sound very offensive or it may not seem very groundbreaking to you, 
But in that traditional and patriarchal ancient society, the message of the gospel was liberating and scandalous. Even in Ephesians 5, for Paul to address women and say, wives, submit to your husbands, you know, to us, that, you know, to a modern reader, they may sound offensive, but the fact that Paul, in a written household code, was addressing women at all, and not treating them like property, but treating them as, as equal acting agents who can make choices about their life, is truly an astonishing thing. And so that's one great theme that we see, is equality. But on the other hand, throughout the Bible, we also see a theme of gender differentiation, as we see also in Ephesians 5. That contrary to popular cultural opinion today that insists gender is purely a social construction and that men and women are exactly the same, we know that the Bible teaches that God made the genders differently, that men and women have different roles and responsibilities and callings in the world and marriage and the church, and that men and women flourish most when we take our differences seriously and we live into our God-designed differences. So here's these two great themes, right? That when we listen carefully to the Bible, we see them emerge, equality and differentiation. And it's the job of the church of every age to uh, listen carefully to the passages in which those themes emerge and then apply them to our unique cultural context. So for us at third, it means that we seek to follow the Bible's lead in acknowledging the many ways that the Holy Spirit has poured out really tremendous gifts upon women to lead in all the various ways as deacons and elders and pastors, while we also at third seek to help men and women understand and live into their unique God-designed roles, honoring the differences we have and learning to flourish within them in the church and in the home. And when that happens in a way that is truly surrendered to Jesus and to his word, it frees women and men alike for powerful service with each other. And that's beautiful. I, this is a very big subject. I know I, I, there was many things I didn't cover. We have a whole class this fall on the Bible and women. And so I, I hope you'll, you'll come and, and learn more about it then. But let me sum up. We do the work of interpretation because we want to be, what? Good hearers and good doers. The purpose is not to reject distasteful passages or avoid awkward parts of the Bible that we rather wish were not there. No, the purpose is meaningful obedience so that we can clearly hear what the text said then and there so we can live it and obey it here and now. Just like Paul said, we want to be those who look into the, James said, look into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it, not forgetting what we have heard, but doing what it says. We want to be wise interpreters so that we can hear what the Bible said both then and what God is now saying to us through it today. Let me just close with some practical helps for you to become better listeners, better hearers of God's word. First of all, I would suggest travel and cross-cultural friendship can do amazing things to help open your eyes to the ways that you might be shaped more by your culture than you are by the Word of God. These days, you know, travel is expensive, but these days, you know, we live in such a diverse society that you can actually make a friend who's from another culture and learn more about yourself by being friends with them. You know, my friendship with Fakhri Yaqub from the Christian Arabic Church has really helped me so much to understand that many of the ways that I think personally about money and property and my possessions are more formed by my American Western upbringing than they are by the teaching of God's word about hospitality and generosity. And it's through my friendship with Fakhri and seeing the way that he and the CAC are living that out that I've, my own cultural biases have been deeply challenged. So that's one of the things that we can do, travel across cultural friendships. Another thing we can do is communal reading. You know, it's, it's not enough to just sit in a room by yourself and read the Bible. You need other people. That's why you come to church. That's why you listen to each other. That's why you need small groups or parish groups or classes. 
what that does is it opens you up to hear different perspectives, to hear things that you might not have heard in your own little narrow life, right? So when I read the book of Ruth with my wife, Sarah, you know, I hear really different things from her as a woman reading the book of Ruth than I do as, as, as a man. And that helps me see and hear new things. When I read First um, Peter with someone who has been genuinely persecuted for their faith, which I really have never been, I hear different things than someone like me who has lived my life in relative privilege. And so communal reading does powerful things to open our ears. A good study Bible. You know, I, we have so many amazing resources today. I highly recommend either the NIV or the ESV study Bible. Both of them help you really not just see, read the text, but get into the original context so you can hear what the original hearers were hearing. And then finally, of course, more than anything else, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget speaking to someone who had grown up their whole life in the church, had read the Bible all their life, became a Christian, was born again, had Jesus come into their life, and they said, it is like the Bible, someone could have just given me a completely different book, it could not have been more different. It was like I was reading a whole new book and the whole thing was open to me in a new way. And, and friends, this is why when someone trusts in Jesus Christ, that's really what, the ultimate thing that I appeal to you, is to receive the Spirit of God by knowing Jesus and by receiving him into your life. Because as, as, as important as study is, as important as interpretation is, no matter how many tools you have or how much work you do, you'll never really hear the Word of God and let it penetrate your life unless Jesus floods into your soul and then you're filled with the Spirit so that he can open your ears. So I want to pray here as we close. Pray that prayer that Paul has prayed uh, that we have used here, that we would not just read the Bible, but that the glorious Father may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may look into his perfect law that gives freedom and that we would hear it and that we would follow. So let me pray for us. I do ask, oh God, you glorious Father, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you better. I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Help us to more and more become people who come under the authority of your word by listening to it carefully and obeying it faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.